and welcome to the weekly summaries of the Good Shepherd Bible Study. I am your host, Miller Ansel, the church planning intern. We are a Bible study and longing to be a church plant of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Southwest Houston. So if you're in Southwest Houston, we meet in Stafford at 3211 South Main Street in a church building called Grace Center. We'd love to have you out. Also, please check out our website at gsbiblestudy.org, as well as like us on Facebook at Southwest Houston Reformed. Welcome to week six on our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we get into a quite foundational teaching, not just on the Sermon on the Mount, but for all of our Christian life. And that is the relation of the Christian to the law and to Christ. We find it in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. And that reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I know a young homeschooled man who was in his homeschool co-op recently found himself defending the fourth commandment, that is the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. It wasn't long before he found himself defending all ten commandments. And the reason is his fellow peers and his own teacher were telling him that Christ has come and fulfilled the law. We are under grace, not under law. So how dare you bring in these issues? That story illustrates that Christians are very confused on the role of the law in their lives today. They tend to be in two camps. One is the legalist camp. Legalism can take many definitions, but for our purposes, legalists are binding another's conscience to a law that God has not prescribed. So, for example, you might find somebody who says, I ought not to watch R-rated films. That's fine in and of itself. But when they begin saying that you cannot watch R-rated films as though it's a command of the Lord, they are a legalist. That is a misunderstanding of the law of God in our lives. The other more common view is the antinomian. Anti meaning in place of, and nomian meaning law means in place of the law, we now have grace and not law. And so they have a little ditty that they sing, Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Thus the antinomian has no use for the law in their life, in spite of Romans 6 and 7, uh, where we read that the law is holy and the commandments of the law are good and that we ought not to sin. Well, it's this very camp that Christ is being accused of, of the antinomians. He can hear, as we've gone through the Beatitudes and we've gone through the Salt and Light, 
that he is not teaching as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law would say, God has said, thus saith the Lord. But Christ is not teaching in that manner. Christ is teaching saying, I say to you, truly, truly. The Sermon on the Mount opens up with, and Christ opened his mouth and began to speak. And so when Christ opens his mouth, he begins to tell these people of not only grace, but of the law as well. And he tells them that in fact, he has not come to uh, abolish the law, but in fact, he has come to fulfill the law. Everything that he is teaching is in accordance with the law. And when we say fulfillment, what we mean is he is completely obedient to all parts of it. Now, as Christians, we're all on board with this. Christ fulfills the prophets, right? Um, we think of Isaiah 7, that he will be called Emmanuel. He will be born of a virgin. Christ fulfills that, no problem. But it's the law that really gives us trouble. What does it mean that Christ has fulfilled the law? And it's not simply an individual law-keeping of particular commandments. When Jesus says the law and prophets, he means the entirety of the Old Testament. So he's including what we often call the three types of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Now the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws are not found explicitly stated in the Old or New Testament, but instead we recognize them because we read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament as the types of law that Christ fulfills. So first, the civil law. An example of the civil law is that we ought to stone adulterers. The civil law was for that specific theocratic kingdom of Israel. We must remember that Israel is a son of God. They are a rebellious son to the Father. They are uh, given specific laws. They are brought out of Egypt. They are wandering in the wilderness. And yet, as a child of God, they don't care and they rebel. But we recognize that Jesus fulfills the civil law. He is the perfect son. He is the one who is called out of Egypt. He is the one who is baptized, just as the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea and went to wander in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized and is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and there he is tempted. And as the perfect son, as the son who fulfills all things, he does not give way to sin. Instead, he perfectly fulfills all that the law required. So should we still stone adulterous? Should we uh, still keep the civil law? The answer is no. We look to Christ as the great keeper of the civil law. What about the ceremonial law? The ceremonial law dealt with things such as the Passover and the Passover lamb. And we must remember this. The use of Old Testament ceremonies was abolished. Their meaning was fully confirmed and continues in Christ. Their outward use was temporal, but their meaning is eternal. We cannot forget, whether it's the ceremonial or the civil, that the original is Jesus Christ. He is the archetype, and everything we find in Israel is the ectype, which is to say he is the original, they are the copy, he is the original, they are the pattern. And so it's not as though the Father, God the Father is in heaven, 
going, well, I told the Jews to do this whole sacrifice thing, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Instead, it is God the Father saying, I'm going to send my son as a sacrifice to my people, and I'm going to put this Passover lamb as a picture of that. Thus, Jesus, being the original, does not abolish but fulfills the Old Testament types. And so we see, as John Murray said, the temporal symbols continue to function in illuminating the meaning of the righteousness of Christ and the final works of Christ. That's another way of saying that they still bind us, but only insofar as we look to Christ as our Passover lamb. That third category of law is moral, and it's very different than the other two. Civil and ceremonial, they're relegated to a specific group at a specific time, that is the kingdom of Israel. The moral law is for all people at all times, everywhere. And Christ fulfills it. And he fulfills it in the same way, perfectly obedient to it. And while he fulfills it, we also must recognize that the moral law has a certain use that continues beyond the nation of Israel. That is often what we call the third use of the law. That is, that Christians are to conform their lives to God's will as revealed in the law. Believers are not under the law in order to be justified before God. We also will not be condemned before God because of it. Instead, the law is a great use of us for us in informing us as to what God requires and our duty. And so we don't have to wonder about what God wants for my life. Instead, we can just go to the moral law. We might say it this way. The law is not opposed to grace. Instead, grace enables us to keep the law. And so we find that it's not law versus gospel. It's law and gospel go hand in hand. There is no antithesis. They sweetly comply with one another even down to the minuscule parts of the law, the jots and the tittles or the iotas and the dots. That is the smallest letters, the smallest thing we can think of. God cares about that. I think too often we think little of those who are very concerned about keeping God's law. And we think highly of those who don't care. Instead, we were reminded by Matthew Henry that it is a dangerous thing in doctrine or practice to disannul the least of God's commands. And so Christ is teaching that there is a certain gradation within the kingdom of heaven. There is higher and lower levels and higher levels for those who care about the minutia of the law and lower levels for those who relax certain portions of the law, which is to say that we must not only know the forest but we need to know the trees. We need to know the bark, the sap dripping down between the bark of the trees. We cannot say, I don't care about the second commandment. I just care about the gospel. I don't care about keeping the Sabbath holy. I just care about Jesus. If you don't like the minutia and the smaller parts of the law, you're going to be very uncomfortable with Christ's teaching on it. So we find, what does this mean? Uh, the breaking, the relaxing, the smaller parts of the law. These are not specific laws that we are breaking. Rather, what it is is viewing certain commandments worthy of being broken or ignored. Think 
the Super Bowl, uh, your child is a soccer game, you have a family event on the Lord's Day that morning at 10 a.m., do you skip worship in order to attend the special event? Ought we to relax the law of God in order to do such things? And should we teach others to do the same? Specifically, if you have children, you're teaching them that there are events that are oftentimes more important than corporate worship. Well, I think we can all agree that the fourth commandment on keeping the Sabbath holy reminds us that we ought to be in corporate worship and nothing is more important on our Lord's Day than that. And you say, well, Miller, this is a lot of work. You're really asking me to take on a lot of time and understanding God's law. Well, I would remind you what Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us, that Christianity is not a part-time job. It is not achieved by the religious observance of a part of a Sunday. It demands all the time and attention that we have. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones does a good job to remind us that we must study the law, that we ought not to despise the Ten Commandments, that the gospel and the coming of Christ does not do away with the moral law. Jesus does not change it one whit. It cannot save us. We are not justified by it, but we never, never despise it. In fact, we ought to delight in it. Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Never forget that we are saved to be keepers of the law and not breakers of the law. Well, then how do we end this with verse 20 in the Pharisees' righteousness? We must first recognize Christ is not talking about imputed righteousness. This is a negative statement against the Pharisees. He is saying that the Pharisees do great works. You think they are so great. You think, I mean, today we would call them our favorite seminary professors, our favorite theological authors. You think they're so awesome? They're not awesome enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness is not good enough. And it leaves us going, wow, how in the world could we be good enough? You see, the Pharisees' righteousness was a hypocritical, outward self-righteousness. They wanted everybody to see how great they were, but they had no righteousness of the heart. That's why Christ goes and he gives six examples coming up of how it's not enough just to not murder your brother. You must not hate him in your heart. It's not enough to just not cheat on your wife. You must not lust in your heart. The Pharisees wanted Christ to be pro-law. He's more pro-law than you could ever imagine. So much so that it impacts your inner being. And so we see two types of righteousness. One of the Pharisees that is outward, and yet inside they are full of bones and death. And we see the righteousness of the Christian, the one who has a changed heart, the one who seeks to serve the Lord with all that is within him. You see, when we read that our righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, we know that can never happen. We have no goodness within ourselves. We cannot enter the kingdom. And thus we do trust in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that he has fulfilled the law and he's fulfilled the law in us. Romans 8, 3 and 4. What the law has weakened by the flesh, Christ has come 
in sinful flesh because of our sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so we walk now according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, because of Christ's fulfillment of the law. And so join us next week as we look into the next six examples that Christ gives us of keeping the law, particularly in regards to anger, murder, lust and adultery, and divorce. And continue to uh, check us out at gsbiblestudy.org.